Welcome to The Flute and I. Join me, Ashling Agnew, as we explore the unique world of the flute in Northern Ireland. World-renowned players, teachers and makers from a wide variety of musical backgrounds share their experiences and expertise. This episode features the living legend of the flute, Sir James Galway, and his wife and fellow performer, Lady Jeannie Galway. Thank you so much. This is an incredible honour for me to be speaking to you, Sir James and Lady Jeannie. And I've known you both since I was a kid learning the flute and you've <laughs> both been a huge inspiration to me. One of the first memories was having my flute lesson with Billy Dunwoody and I'm holding out the phone and telling me what you were saying at the time about my scales that I was furiously practising. Um, <laughs> But it, it comes right back to me about how fortunate we were as kids then in Belfast to have you coming back and doing classes. And no matter where you were in the world, you always made time to come back home. And coming back home when you used to go to Billy's and you used to do some play with oh. the flute band and everything. Remember all those years? That's great. Well, I, th- I thought about it today when I was listening to the radio. They played my version of the Carnival of Venice. And I couldn't believe anybody can play that quick. <laughs> And I, I remember we used to do this at, uh, we used to play this at Billy's house with Etta playing the piano. Mm-hmm. One of my first memories actually was he bought my engagement ring. We went together to, to Lunds in Belfast and it was at Billy's house. And you might have even been there. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe you weren't even born. I don't think you were born then actually. Um, <laughs> But we went there, and I remember all these flute players being there, me being a New York flutist. We didn't have such camaraderie, not to this scale. And there was at Billy's house, and all these flutists crammed together in a room, and he was pulling out the music. And then I think uh, Irene was in the kitchen getting all the cakes and everything (laughs) ready. And I couldn't believe that everyone was so happy playing the flute together. I thought, this is a different world for me. And this was my entry into James Galway's world. And I think what a wonderful way to be brought up, because you were brought up that way. Yeah, that's true. There was no uh, animosity between the the kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, it hasn't changed that much. Our kids learn the flute. You know, there's such a great community aspect to it in Belfast, and there always has been. Can you tell me a wee bit about when you were setting out to perform, what your main sources of inspiration were? Was it coming from yourself to be the best player that you could possibly be? Or were you looking at other great musicians and and wanting to emulate them? Well, it's hard to to tell this story. I mean, I didn't have any 
idea about being the best in the world or anything like that. I just got on with the little bits and pieces that I was doing. And you see, Billy was very good because he never gave his music that we couldn't play. And I remember one day, <laughs> one day I was at his house and I was looking at this book of Burm studies. And he said, what are you doing with that? I said, oh, I was just trying to play it. He said, it's much too difficult for you. I said, well, can I borrow it anyway? <laughs> so I, I borrowed it and I started to play it. But I couldn't, I couldn't play all of the studies because some of them went up to top B and B flat. And I didn't even know the fingering for those notes. And how old would you be at this time? Probably about 12 or 13, something like that. And uh, gradually I learned these notes and I could play these, these studies. And I, I would recommend this book to anybody starting out on the flute. Uh, I mean, not starting out on the flute, but if they want to get sort of serious mm -hmm. about the flute. These, this is like the, the handbook for the flute written by the guy who invented it. Yeah, but didn't you also secretly play the Carnival of Venice in these pieces? Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> secretly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to stop that enthusiasm. Well, I, I have to say I was really very impressed with my own playing today on the radio. <laughs> I hadn't heard that record for maybe 25 years. Listen to your records much? Or no. no. Well, we listen to the CPE Bach yeah. and Charity because we always put that on. I, I love that. I think that's, for me, one of my favorite recordings he's done, the CPE Bach. Yeah, it's and a Charity. very, very good record. Uh, when I looked up, because I was looking up what years you were recording, and I kept seeing the same year, and I thought it's not possible yeah. that he recorded these three or four CDs within one year, plus doing major tours. And I think, boy, we had a busy life. Yeah. <laughs> but you had a busy life. Yeah, I mean, we did. You just, but this is this is what the whole thing is about, being on shape and ready to yeah. go. Yeah, well, certainly I was in very good shape for those CPE Bach concertos. I mean, they are very difficult. Mm-hmm. You did the quants the same year. Yes, that's Plus right. you were doing those big tours in Germany, which had about 26 concerts in them, yeah. on and off the bus. And that would be on the tail end of an American tour. And then go to London and do the Christmas concerts. Right. It was a busy, it's a busy three months. <laughs> yeah. You just reminded me, thinking of the records, because I, I, I like vinyl. You can see it behind me. So I have yeah. quite a large collection of yours. But I remember the first wow. time I, I heard your Rodrigo record. I, I distinctly remember it, and I thought, a flute can't do that. <laughs> I just thought, that's impossible. <laughs> There's just so many notes, it's ridiculous. <laughs> well, if you, want to, if you want to get really impressed, I've got three or four students who play it from memory. <laughs> but that's you passing it on, and that's that's your school. That's your. The... That, that's me passing it on, turning yeah. the screws. Yeah. Yeah. 
obviously you set the bar so high that there were people like Rodrigo and Lieberman, for example, that have written the pieces at that level that yeah. now people are sort of pushing themselves to try and play mm -hmm. at. You know, the, the benchmark standard has been raised so much. What's it been like to work with different composers? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, I never ask a, a composer to change anything. Whatever they wrote, that's what I played, even if it killed me. And the Rodrigo nearly killed me, <laughs> I can tell you. That was, that was really a very difficult piece. Because, you know, gradually, as people wrote pieces, the, the bar went up a bit each mm -hmm. time. And, uh, I mean, Rodrigo certainly put it up there. Yeah. But it's a, it's a great part of your legacy that a lot of those pieces that were written for you are now part of the standard repertoire. I mean, a lot of the composers that you worked with, you know, they've become right. core repertoire now for flute, which is really exciting. I mean, even Arnold also, right? Oh, Malcolm didn't write a concerto, but he wrote a, a, a sonata, which is a very good jazzy type of piece. Yeah. There are many pieces also that I think that we should get uh, more in the standard repertoire. For instance, Bill Balcom's concerto. Yes. Well, you see, this is a difficulty we have with the British school of flute playing. Mm -hmm. They don't want to play anything that's written for me by an American. No, but we're talking international here, Jimmy. We're talking international. Yeah, I'm talking international. But, like, for instance, many of these flutes and charity have not come into the mainstream, which really they should be played because they're beautiful works. Oh, sure. You know, by the students. Sure. And I think they would play them. But you see, the, the difficulty with the flute is there's so many concerti written by second-class composers. You know, that when, when you mention... I mean, even the BBC and... Other establishments like that put Ebert as a second-class composer. Mm -hmm. And when you think it's, it's our piece, it's a really good piece. Yeah. Was that a challenge for you then when you set out as a soloist to have enough big heavyweight concertos to play? Yes, it was actually. And uh, I overcame it by doing certain things like playing the, the Four Seasons. We, we did the Four Seasons live in Albert Hall. What else did we do? Then you went over to and played. That was your debut in America. You played it in the Hollywood Bowl. That's right. And then I, I, I came back, I think, in 1981. I'm not sure. And played all the box and artists, all of them, one after the other, on the stage in Carnegie Hall. In one concert? Yes. Oh. And you took it all over America. That's right. And also Europe. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And as a duo, have you commissioned anybody or has anybody written for you as a duo? Like, has that repertoire expanded? Because you've obviously toured quite a lot, you know, playing together as well. Uh, we had some arrangements mostly in the year of Mozart's, I forget which birthday it was. Remember, our management wanted to celebrate it by taking us on tour. We went on, on tour of America, one of these huge tours. So we asked a friend of Sir James's, David Overton, who you know has arrangements <laughs> to, and he came up with this piece called The Magic Flutes. And so it, it's fantastic. It's really mm -hmm. great. And we did record it. And it's, it's you know, a whole conglomeration of all the different concerti and symphonies. And uh, it's just wonderful.
There have been other pieces written, but we have always stuck to the standards, you know, and there, there are some really good pieces, and we've done the Dopplers, the Chimorosas, Stomachs, yeah. a lot of them. We never did the Quants. I always wanted to do the Quants for two flutes. And then the Bach Trio Sonatas and things like that. No, we didn't really venture into that, and I think a lot of it um, was because of the busyness of our schedule. Yeah. Also, I think with when we would play something together, I always looked at it as that Sir James was the highlight with his concerto, and then I would come in and our double concerto would be a compliment. It wouldn't be the main part of the concert. Uh, as much as they love the two of us, you know, they want James Galway to do something very special. His signature pieces or something. Or Mozart is usually what they ask you to do, right? That's right. I think some of the nicest times, though, that we've had together is when you've conducted. And it would be, um, for instance, when we used to do the tours with the London Mozart players. Yeah. And you would conduct uh, the Mozart Overture and then Mozart, and then we'd come in and play Chimorosa. And yesterday, someone asked me what one of the highlights of my career was. And I said, actually, you're going to laugh, but we played in the Music Verein in Vienna, and it was sold out. And this is a very, very knowing audience mm -hmm. and we played with the london mozart players and we played the chimorosa and they all gave us a standing ovation <laughs> and we had to play the last movement again and i thought this is something you don't normally see <laughs> so probably in that case we could have played a really great commission yeah um, i think for us it's been a matter of time and things too but when Jeannie said we played it in vienna we played it in that concert hall where they do the new year's new, eve. Year's, eve. new year's day concert yeah. And I did several solo concerts in there. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. I remember doing one concert in which Philip Mullen and myself, we, we always made the programs together. And we, we decided we were going to play the Frank Martin, but we didn't have time to practice it on the tour. So I arranged to, to meet Philip the day before. We met the day before, practiced a bit. And then on the day, I couldn't find Philip anywhere to, to play it. So I was really hopping mad, and I tore him off a strip. <laughs> Anyhow, the concert took place, and the next day, the critics said that this performance of Frank Martin was absolutely outstanding. <laughs> and that, that's not normal for you, because you're a big rehearser. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's well, the, so is Philip. I mean, yeah, sure. sure. I, I don't know what he was doing. Well, it's a dramatic piece. Probably that, that sense of panic adds something to that <laughs> Yes, but we don't want to tell the students that that's no, a good no. asset to have. <laughs> no, for sure. It's been kind of crazy those years touring and fitting everything in. And even just the little bits that nobody sees, like trying to practice probably sometimes in hotel rooms and, you know, keep yourself in shape. But did you find that it was really rewarding? Sure. No, it was very rewarding. You know, when, when Jeannie and I arrived in a hotel, the first thing we'd do is get something to eat. And then practice. That's the first challenge, actually. And then practice. <laughs> and I would always claim the bathroom because I believe in, in playing in bathroom-type places. Well, depend. Depend if you were taking a nap, I'd claim the bathroom. But then after a while, I left you to it, and I would go to the concert. I'd book the concert hall before. Mm -hmm. On the tour, I would have a rehearsal room yeah. <laughs> so you could get the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. You know, people these days, they think, that if they play in a padded room that's dead, it will improve their playing. Mm -hmm. But it's not true. When you think of all the, all the big music conservatories around Europe, especially in Italy, mm -hmm. in Italy, all the, all the concert halls, they're, 
the practice rooms in these conservatories and concert halls. It's all very live, very live. Because they're the old, old buildings, you know. Yeah, marble and stone probably and really reflective. Yeah, you sound good just but just as soon as you walk in, you get the flute out and it sounds great. <laughs> um, back to touring for a minute. I came on a bit later um, touring with my husband. He was already set, as we know. And I remember for me it was a real eye-opener because all of a sudden you had no time to practice mm -hmm. and you were so tired from traveling. You get used to this on the tour and you get to really understand how it all works and so the advice is you have to be in such good shape before you go you really if you're working with a pianist or a chamber group you have to rehearse it till no end before you arrive mm -hmm. and if you are using a new group which we would never do he would never do right you would never use like a group in japan and just arrive and play with them no and we've had many a problem with um with promoters because of this because yeah. they'd want him to play with a certain group and he'd say no i want to because he knows the level you know the level they want and the other thing is you know you learn to adapt when you get there so i started ahead of time you know you you just you can always get a room somewhere and sometimes it's in a conservatory or it's in a patron's house mm -hmm. and so you learn all these kinds of things. Eating is very important on tour and it's very difficult, yeah. right? So we always carry fruit. Yeah. Remember the time I carried the walk? Oh. <laughs> we won't get into all that today, Ashley. Yes, we will. We will. <laughs> we were just married then. Jeannie had this black bag. It was a white bag. Okay, Jeannie, uh, rephrase that. Jeannie had this black bag, but it was white. <laughs> and... She wouldn't let me see what was in it or even carry it. And one day I picked it up and I thought, well, where's a ton? I wonder what she's got in there. So when we got home and unpacked it, she had a walk in there, a big walk. <laughs> well, let me explain why we had a walk in there. Because I had taken a Chinese cooking course in London, Ken Lo's cooking course that you <laughs> later went to also. So when I went to New York, we went to Chinatown, and my girlfriend got me a walk as a present. But we were going on tour, so somehow, I don't know why I didn't leave the walk in New York, but I kept taking it with us. And at that time, also, you could take a little more cabin baggage on the plane. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the walk came with us. There's a lot of stories we forget about. I think we've had the added advantage, though, that since I came onto the scene, which was already about 39 years ago, we've made a home on the road. And that's a really, a really nice thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean... Yeah, you have fun together and we enjoy yeah. it. Life yeah. with walks and things yeah. like that. And also that has given us the advantage to uh, with the teaching, as you know, Ashleen, you know, and yeah. including yeah. students, because uh, then we we had the ability to wor work with the different level of students, because that was my first memory of him was in Belfast with all the students like you. And so it's, it's really, it's come full circle in a way. Mm -hmm. So when we say that we're happy to be home I and mean, we're not, we're not happy during this, well, we're always happy, but the pandemic, you know, it's, it's been very hard uh, on many levels, but for us, um, We've had a great time, and the traveling was really getting wearing, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was getting to the point that uh, with all these restrictions, yeah, like checking in was a pain in the neck. Mm -hmm. I just hated it. Yeah, One yeah. time I arrived at Zurich Airport to check in to go to Holland. I'll never forget this one. And, and uh, <laughs> I forgot my passport, and they said, oh, do you have any... Do you have a driver's license or anything? I said, no, but you know what? I've got a CD. So 
they looked at me and said, yeah, anybody can make a CD. I said, yeah, but I can play everything on it. <laughs> so they let me through and they gave me a, a ticket. And they, they didn't make you prove it there and then by playing? And- no, no, they, they began to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, since we've been in lockdown and obviously everybody's been at home, which is a nice respite from, from the crazy tour in life, do you find that you still have motivation to play? Like, do you play most days, and do you still have motivation to practice? No, it's a bit more. It's a bit more difficult now because you you don't have a you don't have to play for a concert. You don't have the goals like before uh, about the festivals coming up, and we really have to be in very very good shape. Uh, but on the other hand, when we do pick up the flute, we know what to do in that hour. And I think that that's really important. Duets and things. We have these two alto flutes sitting there, I think, for months. <laughs> and we were going to record our Mozart duets on these alto flutes. And I said to him yesterday, we really should do these alto flutes. I keep forgetting, you know. And um, because also what's taken our energies, because we're not young um, techie like you are, is to learning a, a lot about this and going online and creating these these tutorials and all this because we are home by ourselves, so it really creates problems. But what we did do is we immediately went into motion and um, did the best we could here and worked around with the lighting. And today we got the lighting better than yesterday. We're getting good at this, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and we we made one of our our offices that was going to be the home for our music library into a recording studio so that's what now we have it all set up uh so that we, we can um and you've probably seen some of the things we've done we've been able to do master classes mm-hmm. q a's and uh just any like i have a series that i was doing called your next step and so we can just come on at any time but i think that's taken a lot of our energy oh yeah the other things yeah sometimes people they ask for uh teaching for 20 minutes and you know it's very hard to even start I mean, I think it's ridiculous. It takes me 20 minutes to sort out how good that person is yeah, and yeah. to know what you can ask them to do and to know yeah. how to get, how to ask them the right question to get them to the next step. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. why, actually, we've changed this because now we're opening up to teaching Skype lessons again. There's going to be no more half-hour offers or 45 minutes because... We just can't do it. And we feel that if the student is investing the time to get online with you and really wants to learn, like he says, you know, it's they just don't play through a piece. You know, you can't really give them value for money. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a little bit about flutes and sound? Because I was thinking about particularly yourself, Sir James, how distinctive a flute sound you have. And if you ask anybody in the world... Mm-hmm. They could identify your flute sound above anybody else. And I know so many people that have said, you know, if you come on the radio and yeah. it's the middle of a piece, you know, yeah. everybody just knows instantaneously <laughs> that it's you. And I wanted to ask you about how you cultivated that. And were there particular flutes that you were drawn to play in because they enhanced that? Or was that not as important? Was it really drawn from yourself? Not really. I mean, the first flute I, I played was a little B-flat flute, you know, in the flute band. And uh, I managed to get a, a reasonable sound out of that. Then I progressed and got a, a, a concert flute. And uh, it was made by E.J. Albert in Brussels. And after a while, I, I went to the Royal College of Music. And from the money I got for all the little gigs I did, I bought a Haynes, 
closed hole, low C. And I, play, I played on that for about 15 years. And then I, I bought a Cooper, which was absolutely great, really unbelievable good, because during that some time I was in the Sadler's Wells Opera and I managed to accrue enough money. I then met up with Muramatsu, and the thing that really impressed me with Muramatsu flutes was that they worked so very well. I mean, Uni was talking the other day about a flute that we had packed away somewhere, and we hadn't played on it for about 15 years. So we got it out, put it all together, and it played absolutely beautifully. They all do, actually. I mean, one of the flutes has to go in for a little repair, Flat one of the platinum flutes, because it's a little bit dry. A little dry. But um, <laughs> Like me. No. <laughs> but, uh, but what about that concept of sound, James? But, but you didn't buy the flute. I think this is important for students to know. You didn't keep buying flutes to get a better sound. No. You already had your sound. That's right. I, I changed flutes just because they were making better instruments. The mechanics were better. I mean, Muramatsu was manufacturing a really tremendous flute. And I thought, okay, i got to get one of these because you don't have to take it to the flute makers every five minutes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my Cooper flute was a very good flute, but it had certain drawbacks. And one of them was that the keys were different sizes. All right. And it was very difficult to get flute makers to make pads different sizes. So then Muramatsu came up with, with the answer to the problem. And uh, they were very good, actually. In those days, I used to do a lot of touring in Japan. And while I was doing that, the two chief technicians would come around and watch me play, listen to rehearsals, listen to me practice, discuss this, that, and the other thing, and change the flute. And they came up with a really good flute, which is, which is the one that they use today. But also, I think that that at that time, when you had, I remember this, with the problems with the Cooper, because he was doing so much playing, you can imagine these yeah. box sonatas and, you know, one concert at Carnegie Hall, and then the next day you're in Philadelphia and you've got to play the same flute. And you only were <laughs> traveling with that flute. And that was what was great about the Muramatsu, because you could get two flutes so that when one, and many times in a concert, I'd have to go get you a second flute. And then when you could get it repaired anywhere. That was a big thing. Yeah. I remember once playing the Nielsen in the festival hall. Mm -hmm. And afterwards I showed the flute to Albert. And he looked at me and said, you must be joking. How, how can you even play this thing? <laughs> so I used to squeeze like mad. When you, used to, when, you really, when you think of it, how did you do it? I mean, it was nonstop. And it was TV under those lights and everything. And mm -hmm. whew. What kind of drove what you imagined a flute sound to be? Because the thing is, for me, like, I, I got to listen to you. And so then I had ideas of what flutes should sound like as a kid. But what was driving your direction of what you wanted to sound like? Uh, I don't know. As a matter of fact, I don't know. I know what I sound like when I hear it on the radio. But when I play, I'm not aware of this James Galway sound that you're familiar with. Really? Mm. But... Uh, I'll tell you one thing, you know, it's an interesting thing being a teacher because you can talk all about sound, how to do it and everything. And you say to the student, now, do you understand? Yes. Okay, go ahead. 
playing a C natural, and they play exactly the same C natural they'd been playing last week. It doesn't make any difference. You you have to really change your conception of sound, and you have to want to change it. And when you play, when you pick up the flute to play, you do not play with the same sound like before, but you blow into the flute to get a good edge on the tone. You, of course, though, had the years in Belfast, actually, studying with a singer. Yeah. And this was a big part, probably, of your, um, well, definitely, I mean, you speak about that a lot. And then later, also studying with a singer and listening to opera singers and Marcel Moise. And so I think as you developed, I mean, this was your foundation, was working with a singer. Yes. Yes, it was. I, I mean, the singer we're talking about in Belfast is Muriel Dawn. And she was a very good singer. And, you know, she sang in The Promise with, with Sir Henry Wood conducting. She sang solo. And her, her husband, sorry, wasn't he the head of the Belfast Music Schools? Yes, he was. Yeah. They were big parts in my husband's life and how he was able to get over to London and get that, yeah. get that award. Would you say that you change or tried to change actively the way in which you played when you went from being mainly an orchestral player to being a soloist and then playing chamber music as well, like would you have adapted? No, I, play, I tried to play with the same sound that you hear. But I think, I think everybody can play with an individual sound. You just have to look for it. And you don't get it by just picking up the flute and blowing across the hole. You have to adjust to get a grip on the sound somehow or other. You mentioned about the Mozart concertos and some of the touring, and I wonder, when you're still playing that these days, do you still enjoy it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure. Because I'm trying to think how many times you must have played those concertos. <laughs> no, I, I like playing them a hundred times, you know, because you know why? You get to know them real well. I mean, any, anybody who says to me, oh, I, I don't like playing that concerto anymore. I've played it too many times. I think, well, you probably didn't get to know it like I know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to pick out, you know, because there's been so many, but would there be any particular highlights or also were there any concerts that you would say were really particularly difficult or challenging for whatever reason? Well, playing the Rodrigo live world premiere in a festival hall on TV, <laughs> 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 that's your really, you really think... Am I really praying for this to happen, <laughs> or am I just going through a routine? I, I mean, you really pray that it'll work. Especially with all those high Ds, huh? Oh, yeah.
later on you did things like played the E-Bear Concerto on one rehearsal live from Lincoln Center with okay. Lauren Mazel. I mean, this is... <laughs> <laughs> this see, this is the problem. Later, is that you don't uh, the orchestras don't have the rehearsal time for That's you. Right. Well, let me tell you something about Lauren. Yeah, the first time I met him, I was in the Royal, no, the London Symphony, and we were playing in Albert Hall, and we did um, the New World Symphony and some music by Ravel, but I remember. Lauren rehearsing this stuff and he was really meticulous about how it should go and uh, then the next time I met Lauren was in Pittsburgh and I turned up to play the Ebert Flute Concerto, mm -hmm. solo flute so Lauren came in and he was exuding not friendly vibes <laughs> and, he, and I said to him do you know this piece? He said yes I studied it, but I've never heard it. I said, well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> because there's a lot of little things in it that happen that people don't know. You know, for example, the bassoon, low C on the bassoon is sharp. And when you play the cadenza, the last note is a D flat. <laughs> and the bassoon player's secretly trying out the note, and he's like, oh, great. It's in tune. So he plays a C sharp and a C major chord. <laughs> so all this sort of stuff began to happen in the, in the rehearsal. So Lauren began to look at me like I had two horns. <laughs> <laughs> and, and after that, we played stacks of, oh, we played millions of, just tons of flute concerto. We, we played a Yendrick Feld concerto, which I believe has hardly ever been played. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very special friendship, and Lauren wrote two okay, two concerti for you. Yes, he oh, did. Right. Another two that people don't know about. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. Well, actually, was. it was the opening of the Waterfront Concert Hall. Oh, okay. Oh, he, that's yeah, right. That's right. That, yeah. Vapors and capers. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Remember? Yeah. But tell them what the vapors and capers is, because it's great. Oh yeah. Remember the phone call? Yeah, the phone call. I was sitting at home, you know fiddling around at my, in my room. And the phone rang and the voice said, Jimmy, this is Lauren. I said, hey, Lauren, what's going on? And he said, I'm thinking of writing a humorous flute concerto. Well, for Lauren to do anything humorous was it sort of... <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He wrote a very, very funny piece. And it was for two actors and a third one off stage and accordion. And orchestra. And flute. And flute, of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what happened was that Lauren went on holiday to Ireland for a month and he'd heard all this Irish music going on. And this is another thing. I can't picture Lauren sitting in an Irish pub <laughs> listening to Irish music. But apparently that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> and he really got into it. And he said, the trouble is with these guys, when they sing, you can't understand the, the words because they're too busy trying to sing the notes. He said, what I think we should do, Jimmy, is this. We should have one, one actor acting the male parts and another the female parts, mm -hmm. and one off stage. The actor will then recite the, the words of the songs, and uh, then we will play it in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Well, this, this was fine, except one or two things were really amazing. <laughs> It came to it came to Danny Boy, 
And of course, we play the first part. Mm -hmm. Then we play the second part, and it went all mad with crazy yeah. Schoenberg type harmony. Yeah. And all that. I said, Lauren, this is this is not right. He said, Yeah, you know, Danny was more complex than you. Thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but then at one point, and there's an announcement. It says, "Ladies and gentlemen, the Galway races." Off we go, the Galway races. <laughs> and uh, what do you call it? Molly Malone. Molly Malone was so and fun. Fair City. The girls are so pretty. And then when Molly it comes Malone. to when it comes to Molly dying, he had number three actress yeah. off stage going muscles, 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 coggles, 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 echoing all through the thing. I mean, it's absolutely it's brilliant. But yeah. then he wrote a serious concerto, mm -hmm. and I think it's I think it's just great. So I, I know that Ashley has a lot more questions for you, but just one thing. Now, here's how the concerti came to place, the tour in Russia. It was in oh, between conducting, oh, yeah. remember? <laughs> this is what it's like. But these are two really great musicians. You've got James Galway, who Lauren Mazel to admire like this, because Lauren was a very, very particular person, and his IQ was way off the charts, right, and his mm -hmm. musical understanding. And so you have Lauren Mazel and James Galway on, on the stage. That's really very, very special. So we were on tour in Russia with the Pittsburgh Symphony and Lauren conducting. It was a concerto that they commissioned for you to take on tour. Yeah. And uh, by what was it called? Mark Nykrug. I forget what it was. was it called something. I know I call it something. Anyway, <laughs> and I'll never forget that when he was practicing this, you'd think that Rodrigo was high. This was like so high and so difficult. And mm -hmm. then Lauren turned to you right in the middle of the rehearsal. Yeah, it was in. The, it was actually in the in the middle of the the rehearsal of Mark Nykrug's piece that Lauren is conducting away, and I'm playing away. And he said, "Hey, Jimmy, I said, what? What?" <laughs> <laughs> he said, "You know, I think I could write a better concerto than this." I said, "Well, why don't you?" And he did, way better. Okay. Well, those two gifts really very special, and actually, you were going to perform this concerto with him. After many years of trying to get your schedules free at his festival in America called the Castleton Festival, and we arrived. Yeah, we arrived, and uh, there was a sort of atmosphere of gloom. And I said, what's happening? And he said, oh, Jimmy, you haven't heard. I said, what happened? He said, Lauren died. Lauren passed away the night before. Oh, no. And we had programmed this for many, many years trying to get this together. Meanwhile, we've become very good friends with his wife and children and uh, spent a lot of time. And what was really something was whatever you believe in, here it was, that here was he mm -hmm. there. And he passed away that morning and the performance was in the afternoon. They decided to go on with it. And, and one of the student conductors, this was his festival. He had like hours mentoring and he stepped in to do it. And my husband said, yes, of course I'll do it. And it was these pieces that just beautiful Irish folk music and what a beautiful tribute. Very difficult. And of course, when you did Danny Boy, I don't think anybody in the house could. But what a full circle that this was to be the piece. I think only Lauren could engineer that to have his favorite, really, because he got very close with you. Yeah. Very close. It won't be a performance you would ever forget.
you, you just touched upon the, the course and I wanted to ask you about yes. that as well. And, you know, I had the benefit of coming on the course when I was just 12 years old, which oh. I remember. I still have the poster on my wall. And one of my fondest memories was the day before I played for Sir James and I was benefiting from your classes every morning, Lady Jeannie, but my flute broke. And I think Billy Dunwoody had put in a word somewhere to get it fixed quickly. But you very kindly lent me one of your gold flutes to play in the class. And I, I've I never held a flute so tightly in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was clutching on to this thing and it was amazing. But uh, aside from that, the, the course had a big impact on me. And apart from all of the learning, seeing the amazing students who were a lot of them professional players benefiting from your expertise. So would you tell me a wee bit about that and how it's going to be? Things are obviously a wee bit different this year again. So, Well, I think we've carried on with the same philosophy that you're talking about, Ashleen. It's just being, um, as we mentioned, all inclusive, mm-hmm. all inclusive and, and looking after everyone who, who walks through the doors of the festival, because we feel that it's a, it's a unique time for us to be able to share our expertise, like you said, and, and talents, and of course, the great man here, and uh, with students of all levels and, and professionals, and just a gathering of friends, really, and very serious, but also a lot of fun involved and no competition. And so we've taken that, and um, it's grown. But it was pretty it was pretty full, even when we look at photos way back then. Mm-hmm. But what we were able to do over the years was we were able to find a residency for us, which was right um, nearby in Vecchi's. <laughs> So this way, the students could all sleep and eat together, and they would have concerts on site. And also then we brought in guest artists. That's what we introduced. We we were able to grow the festival a bit and bring in friends of ours, these professionals, and also students who, who came up through the ranks to honor them and to highlight them uh, with a Rising Star Award, the gifts of head joints from flute makers, and flutes for students who don't have them. Mm-hmm. There are many students that come, and uh, we find out that they don't own their own instruments. And then the more that we hear from other students or they'll tell us in a class, you know, so then we speak to a flute maker who's actually there exhibiting and saying, do you have a silver (laughs) flute for us? And then one night it was could we have another silver flute? There's another student. And you know, if we could have another head joint, they said, how many do you need? You know, so I think what we give, it's it's this ripple effect where also everyone is together. So it's been something that's grown and we had our 30th anniversary two years ago. Also his 80th birthday and we brought in the big cake, remember? Yeah. And all the students had party hats. So there's always the parties and the cake are a big part of it at the end, but it's the serious day. It's a daily warm up that we start with every day in live classes and then we go on to his class my class and the guest artists are intermingled they would come for a couple of days and then we had the flute choir and also a big part of of course and a lot of the music we have is billy dunwoody's music <laughs> and he'll want to play something and i'll say I don't know how you can read these parts. So he'll give Colin Fleming a call. And for those of you who don't know, Colin is a former student of my husband's principal, the Ulster Orchestra. And he would always uh, say to me, no, Jeannie, I don't think you can use that because they got E-flat flutes and G-flat flutes and whatever flutes. I say, oh, well, do you have an arrangement? So then we get something sent express. It's the highlight of our year, really. And um, it has grown. So we have evening concerts. It would open with a gala concert with my husband. We'd have four pianists in residence. Four real good. 
good ones real, too. Yeah, we really got to organize it. That we would make sure that you were paired with a pianist that could work with you well, and you would have your half hour in the morning. And because everyone was together, you know, it really when I would watch this, and I look at photos now, I think, oh, how did we put this together, really? And then, and then we would always um, incorporate the students, like we always did, also in in Belfast, where we we would try to bring students into the evening concerts with the guest artists. So we had piccolo evening with 12 piccolos, remember? How could you forget? So then last year came the challenge. We had planned to have the festival in the same venue, 31st year. Guest artists invited, full house, over 100 students, 140 had signed up. And so it's all levels. Here's something I forgot to mention. Yes, tell us, James. We have a 12-year-old kid who plays a Rodrigo from memory. I think he's 13 now. Was he? Oh. Or maybe he's 14. Actually, he's going to Curtis now. <laughs> um, so when this pandemic hit last year and we had to all of a sudden break our American tour and come home and nobody knew what was going on, I said, is there a way we can take the whole entire festival online? And they both said, the whole festival, Lady Goy? I said, well, we don't want the students to be disappointed. I had no idea what I was getting into. But we did it. We did it. We worked with Play with the Pro last year. This year, thanks to Zoom, because they have worked on the sound problems for musicians, high fidelity and everything, mm-hmm. we are creating our own platform and we will have the whole festival online and it will be just like it would be in Becky's and this year now because of the um, improvements. All the students can see each other and chat okay. because I think that that is really, as you know, what's missing right now. Yeah. And and they're also going to have fun little things in the evening. we got two wonderful rising stars this year that will present in concert. And each guest artist, with 13 guest artists, uh, they will all be giving a hands-on masterclass uh, during the day. So we'll be offering classes by us, masterclasses by 13 guest artists, flute choir, and also uh, pre-recorded concerts that the guest artists are giving, interviews. We have one series called Life of the Orchestral Musician, another one that I host called Your Next Step. We have business leaders coming. Our manager is going to come, the head of um, Universal Records. Um, We have composers coming. We have all these people to help guide. So it's grown a little bit is the answer to your question. And if I could just take a minute and read off who our guest artists are. And these are all admirers of yours, and many of them students. And each one, when I when we would approach them, will tell the story that the, the reason why they play the flute today, just like you, is because of James Galway. And uh, I think that's a pretty big compliment. And that's also why we worked tirelessly for this festival. It's uh, to encourage, to mentor, but it's for me. It's uh, to honor this great man. And uh, to to keep this legacy going of that that learning that you learned all those years ago, um, mm-hmm. that we can still bring that to this generation. And I know you get really excited, don't you? See, he yeah. loves it. <laughs> he loves it. So our guest artist this year, we are so fortunately, we have Emily Bynion, uh, the solo flutist of the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra. Dennis Boryakov, solo flutist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, who came to, I don't know if he was there the year that you were there. He came when he was 13 years old also. What? His beautiful wife, Erin Boryakov, who gave a tremendous performance last year, international soloist. Sylvia Carado, originally from Italy, who played in the Vienna Philharmonic and now has a new job in the Orchestra National of France. She teaches in a few conservatories in Strasbourg and also in Berlin. 
Gareth Davies, solo flutist of the London Symphony. Stefan Ragnar Holskutsen, he's solo flutist of the Chicago Symphony, also a student of my husband's from Vecchi's. Francesco Loy, he's our opera specialist. He plays in, in solo flutist Carlo Felice Teatro Orchestra. Nicola Mazzante, our piccolo expert, mm-hmm. who everyone knows, just retired from the Maggio Musicale Fiorentina Orchestra in Florence. Kirsten McCall, who is one of, also one of our all-time favorites, also solo flutist of the Concertgebouw, and you love his class on... Modern music. Extended mm-hmm. techniques, right? It's amazing. You should hear us trying to play. <laughs> <laughs> and try try Kirsten's things. Uh, yeah. So he he gives a class on that, and also great. wonderful work with orchestral excerpts and and things. Okay. He he just tremendous. Lorna McGee, many know um, from Scotland originally trained in with William Bennett in the Royal Academy and solo flutist of the Pittsburgh Symphony. Ulla Milman, she's fantastic. She's a solo flutist of the Danish Radio Orchestra, and Ulla is our Nielsen specialist. And we're very fortunate this year to have Carl Heinschutz with us. He's the principal flutist of the Vienna Philharmonic, and he's usually very busy in Salzburg. And then Thaddeus Watson, who was a student of Sir James's back in Berlin in the days and just retired, wonderful piccoloist and flutist from the Frankfurt Radio Orchestra. So we've chosen these soloists because we feel that these are people that are accessible for all our students when they want to think about furthering their studies. You know, the conservatories they teach, they're all reachable and also are not, um, no one can pay sixty, seventy thousand a year to go to a music school, mm-hmm. you know, so you can go uh, study in Amsterdam, for instance. And mm-hmm. so, so we try to make those relationships. And I think if you want to ask how the festival has built, I think it's our ability to help the student make the relationships with the mm-hmm. other students and also with whatever point they are at their career. Yeah. So I think, I think it's really exciting. Yeah. And, uh, and we tried to keep the price really low. We've, we're offering for 300 uh, Swiss francs, which is about $300, seven days as an auditor. And mm-hmm. so you get to watch everything. And then for a month later, yeah. and then for a participant who would get a lesson, plus the possibility to play with the guest artist, plus playing the flute choir, plus then you're up for awards and things like that. We have scholarships we offer and everything. That's $700. And we know that money is tight for everyone. Uh, we do have financial assistance and we tell everyone if they're looking for financial assistance, get your application in. Okay. Because honestly, we're going to look stronger at an application that's in on April 1st than on April 15th, because we say these are the ones who really want it. So don't hesitate. And this is their chance. I mean, you know that it's changed your life and uh, we're still doing it. <laughs> it sounds like an amazing opportunity. It's There's one thing that is benefiting people this year in that it is online so we can all take part whether you're in Asia or America it's it's as easy for somebody to access I have always loved Sir James collaboration with different types of musicians so amongst my own personal favorites are the album with the Chieftains and I, I love that record that you did with Cleo Lane as well I just you know I wanted to ask you about the collaborations you've had with musicians outside of the classical world is that something that you were really keen to do yes something i really enjoyed doing i especially liked uh, the collaboration with cleo lane actually only one piece we did live the rest was recorded over all right okay. but of course then we did a huge american tour yeah that was great 
And did you find it came naturally enough going outside of the classical sphere? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think you should be able to play everything. My only disappointment in life is that I never became a real good jazzer. Okay. Still time, James. (laughs) Anyway, we have nothing to do tomorrow, so. (laughs) And working with Matt, that was special, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Matt came to honor my husband for his 80th birthday Mm -hmm. at the um, National Concert Hall, and he came and he played. It was just great. It It was was really really fantastic. It was a really special concert. mention uh, is Bill Whalen's Flute Concerto. That's a really very good piece. Linen and Lace. Well, I, I wanted to have an Irish Flute Concerto, and I thought the guy to do it would be Bill. So we got in touch, and gradually, after a few meetings in various restaurants, restaurants, we decided no, to they go were ahead. restaurants. <laughs> Sorry. She's wondering if I say restaurants and said, no, no they, they were in pubs. We're thinking across the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> After yeah. a couple of meetings, you came up with linen and lace. Yeah. And why is it called linen and lace? Because linen is a Belfast one and lace is the Limerick. Tell you a story about that. We were going over to Limerick from Dublin <laughs> to play. And uh, we got on a train, and of course you you have to get you have to change trains to get to Limerick. So we got we got on a train, had a nice time, got off the train. We were walking along beside it, and it was slowly pulling out of the station when Jeannie starts yelling and screaming, said, "Stop the train! Stop the train!" <laughs> so they did. She left her dress on the train. But it, they were so nice about it. It was something out of a movie where you got this American going, stop the train. <laughs> and he thought this was really something. And I thought, I told you, they're so nice in Ireland. Well, yeah. it's true. Yeah, but that's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful. It was commissioned by the RTE Lyric FM. Yes, that's right. And you've played it quite a few times. You actually played it in the waterfront. Yeah. And, um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful concerto. And also recorded it. Tell Ashleen about the end of it. Oh, you know how you do a flourish on the flute, like, burp? Mm-hmm. Well, Bill wrote a good one, and the first note is top D. Okay. And it goes up to top F. <laughs> but just like... But I managed to do it like ding, 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 bam, both. But but when you were practicing it, you kept switching flutes. Remember? Yeah. You the platinum flute, I think, was responding more. But also interesting too, when he was recording the Lieberman Piccolo Concerto, you used different piccolos for different things. I did. This yes. is an interesting point. Yeah, you know, most professional piccolo players have two piccolos which they use. One for high notes, one for the low notes. And it's I, I think it's a good system, one that I adopted after sitting beside many very good piccolo players in my life. <laughs> I remember the first time I played in the London Symphony doing Mahler 8th in the Albert Hall, and 
there's four flutes and four piccolos. And I was sitting in the middle of these piccolo players and I said, turned to Larry Sanders, who's the first piccolo player in the orchestra. And I said, hey, Larry, do you think we should tune up? He said, tune up. He said, listen, if anybody hears you in this piece, you'll be in the wrong place. <laughs> Is there anything that you haven't done yet or anybody you haven't performed with yet that you would still like to? Have you got plans of things that you would love to do? No, oh, we know one of them. Who's that? The Handel Sonatas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, he's been trying to do this for years, and it's never taken off with the record companies. They always wanted a big hit, right? You still, I think you still want to do that, though, which would be really yeah. nice. We have a beautiful harpsichord. I would even do it for free. No, sh well, actually, you don't get paid for CDs anymore anyway, so I think that'd be really nice for you to do, you know? Yeah. Get together with Viola da Gamba again, Sarah, yeah, and right. with your old group from the Box Sonatas. Wouldn't Maybe I'll play all of them in one concert. I mean, that would be... Yes, he can, standing on his head, you know? What do you mean? There's only a letter no. <laughs> no, I think that, that that was one thing. What else would you like to do? I don't know, Jeannie. I really don't know. <laughs> So, no, I think that we have to wait to see when things open up, you know, but I think for the student, you know, that they keep going. Yes. This is, our, this is our message because things will open up. Yes. I mean, I don't know what goes on in the heads of these kids, but when it comes to it, when there is an audition, they will choose the best. And if you're not fit, if you're not really up there on top form, you can just forget it. And they will be the ones that are really working during this time, but also even though, you know, none of us have access to playing with the piano. Well, some schools I know are open. I know that I don't know what it's like in Northern Ireland at the moment. There's there's really nothing open much at all. So, nothing. so there's like the, the drawback. How do you keep your intonation up? Well, you listen, you mm -hmm. take your tutorials, you come to a flute festival with James Galway who's going to talk to you about practicing your fourths and your fifths. And each one of those uh, orchestral musicians who's up there is saying how they've stayed in shape during the pandemic. And you learn from these people mm -hmm. and, uh, and you're ready to go because all of a sudden things are going to open up and you have to be ready to go. Well, I mean, it, it's so apparent that you guys are keeping the positivity going and keeping motivating. I mean, you've been doing it for so long. It's obviously just second nature to you both. But I know it must take a lot of your energy as well to keep being positive. No matter what, after all this, there's still an appetite for music. So thank you so much, both of you, for your time. And it's been so interesting for me to talk to you both and a real honor as well. Well, thank you, Ashleen. And sure. I have to say that it's it's getting a message from someone like you, who was a student so many years ago, that's doing so well. And that's what gives us the energy. So, um, you. You, you know, you give a lot, too, and so do all our students. So, you know, just keep it going. Mm -hmm.